The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Crusaders America is the greatest country in the world. I can't believe it's the third hour already. Uh, super glad you're here. Please like us on Facebook. You can search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook um, and, and like us there. We can hang out all week. We just started doing Facebook Lives. We try to do one every day. Uh, and every one we've done has been like long, like, like 45 minutes or so. So we get to hang out for a long time, which is cool. Uh, Sue, if you want to be a part of that, please join us over there. And oh, we had a new announcement just a couple days ago that uh, we made on Facebook. So you can find that there as well. Uh, so I enjoy these two people very much. You got comedian Adam Carolla and Ben Shapiro, conservative guy. And these two testified in front of Congress about freedom of speech on college campuses, and they both did an excellent job. I want to start with Adam Carolla's opening remarks. I, I really believe this is as uh, as good as it gets here. Here it is. We're talking a lot about the kids, and I think they're just that, kids. We are the adults, and I don't think we are doing the children. I mean, these are 18- and 19-year-old kids that are at these college campuses. They grew up dipped in Purell, playing soccer games where they never kept score and watching Wah Wah Wubsy, and we're asking them to be mature. We need the adults to start being the adults. Um, Studies have shown that if you take people and you put them in a zero-gravity environment, like astronauts, they lose muscle mass, they lose bone density. We're taking these kids in the name of protection, we're putting them in a zero-gravity environment, and they're losing muscle mass and bone density. They need to live in a world that has gravity. When you you need to expose your children to germs and dirt in the environment to build up their immune system. Our plan is put them in a bubble, keep them away from everything, and somehow they'll come out stronger when they emerge from the bubble. Well, that's not happening. Children are the future, but we are the present. And we're the adults, and we need to act like it. And I feel that, um, mm, I love that. It's so good. 100% true, too. And everyone knows it is. But we don't live like this. And our college campuses certainly have not become this. Do we even need to give examples of that? Do we need to give examples? I mean, I don't think we do. You get it. How weak our kids are. How, how we treat them with kids, kid gloves. No one can get offended. We can't have a soda stream in the Harvard dining hall because they're made by an Israeli company and that offends Muslims. A soda stream offends, like it's completely insane. The Yale Halloween costume outrage. One college group wanted to have a taco Tuesday, but that was offensive to Mexicans. Another group wanted to bring a camel in for one of their events. And that was uh, offensive to Arabs or something. It's just, it makes, it makes, they're so weak. Dipped in Purell, I love that. Now listen, I have a nine-month-old. I know nothing. I just want to be very clear. I know nothing. And I'm very aware of how little I know and how much I still have to learn. But the only example that I've gathered so far in my nine months of dadding is Jack rolling over. So I'll be on the couch and, or we're playing on the ground. 
and he'll be in a position on his back maybe and he wants to roll over on his stomach but he can't because you know his arms above his head and my legs in the way and the blankets in the way so he can't just roll over like he normally could i don't help him i don't help him. i let him figure it out now before you think i'm cruel he's safe no one's in danger here but if he wants to roll over, what he'll do is he, he first he does it the, the normal way, as if he were just laying on his back on the ground. Just kicks his leg over, boom, he's over. Uh, he's like, oh, darn it, that doesn't work. Okay. Uh, and then you can see him. He thinks, he's, okay. So then he tries kicking his leg a little, a little hard, and it doesn't. So he moves his shoulder in. It doesn't work. So then he rotates his hips, and he tucks his head in, and instead of throwing his shoulder over, he does this. Try and then he, don't, boom, does it. Beautiful, huge, giant smile. He loves it. And we cheer him on and we celebrate and we clap and it's great fun. You did it, Jack. Yay, you didn't give up. He's nine months, right? We got to take what we can do with it. So that's my metaphor for effort and grit. But there's something to it, right? I, 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 even at this age, there's something to it. He can't just lay on his back and cry and we're going to come over and flip him over every time. Do it yourself, kid. I'll always be here for you, but you got to do it yourself too. That's the Slater family philosophy at least. And that's our philosophy because we love our son. It's not because we hate him. It's because we love him. We will not raise him in a zero gravity environment. I heard a story one time of a kid who was of walking age. How old are you when you're supposed to walk? Like one or so? So this kid was two. Well past it and couldn't walk. And his parents brought him to the doctor because they wanted to know why, why their, their two-year-old couldn't walk. And one of the first questions out of the doctor's mouth was, does he have any older siblings? And mom said, yes, he has two older brothers. And the doctor goes, well, do do your older, do his older brothers ever pick your son up? Oh yes. They pick him up all the time. They carry him everywhere. The kid doesn't walk because he doesn't need to walk. His brothers carried him everywhere. <laughs> he would just point like a king and be carried to it, to, <laughs> to the other side of the room or have things brought to him all the time. He doesn't walk because he never learned. He didn't need to walk. He starts young. And this absolutely is what we're doing to our kids today when they're 22. And as Corolla said, we need the adults to step up and be adults. The kids are the future, but the adults are the present. Got one more clip of Corolla here. Let's play this one. This is uh, 1601, sir. What's going on on these campuses is uh, we need law and order. We need to bring back law and order. But I think if we just had order, we wouldn't need law. So could we just bring back order and could the faculty and administration on these campuses act like faculty and administration and most importantly adults who are in charge of these kids who need some gravity in their life thank you Mm. if we had order we wouldn't need law it's great um i mean our founding father spoke similarly with that right that this government can only be possible with a virtuous people that's that's basically it uh really if our kids had personal responsibility if they had an internal driving value system 
If kids had curiosity and wanted to learn and wanted to be challenged, as opposed to always wanting to be affirmed, then we wouldn't need law. We wouldn't need extra free speech laws on college campuses. The fact that we're even having this conversation means that we have a generation of kids who have entirely missed the point and a generation of adults who don't care. I'll, I'll end on this quote here. This is a Ivy League professor. Kids who manage to get into elite colleges have, by definition, never experienced anything but success. The prospect of not being successful terrifies them, disorients them. The cost of falling short, even temporarily, becomes not merely practical, but existential. Their entire existence is determined uh, on this one moment of potential failure. The result is a violent aversion to risk. You have no margin for error, so you avoid the possibility that you will ever make an error. Ivy League professor, kids don't know how to fail. They've lived zero gravity lives. They've never scratched their knees. They're afraid of a little blood. And from that, you get chaos. You don't get order from that. You get more chaos. Isn't that interesting? Wouldn't you think of, a, of generations of preparing the way instead of preparing the kid? Wouldn't you think you'd get more order? You don't. You get total freak out, anxiety, depression, chaos, violence. It's what we have right now. One more education story I want to share next. Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, thanks for being here. Um, I found the <clears throat> entrance examination for University of Illinois in 1922. And I, I just want to share this as an example of how far we've fallen. I think it was the first hour of the show. We talked about how the Cal State system in California, we have three levels of higher education. You have community college, then above that, Cal State, and above that, University of California. So Cal State, 40% of incoming freshmen in Cal State have to take remedial classes because they don't know how to read and write and do math. So to solve that problem, because there were so many kids who needed it, they just got rid of them. No, not the kids, I'm sorry. They just got rid of the remedial classes. No more remedial classes. So now everyone is doesn't know how to read and write. <laughs> I should say, no one knows how to read and write and do math now. So, like we so we talked earlier about where what's the good of that? Like now what? What's the what good could possibly come from getting rid of remedial classes in the Cal State system? I don't want to go back into that, but this is a good example of how far we've fallen. I'm reading this awesome Thomas Jefferson biography. I'll put this on uh, Twitter as well. This book I'm reading about Thomas Jefferson's great, and in it the uh, biographer says that when he went to William and Mary, when Thomas Jefferson went to William and Mary the admission standards were very relaxed. You only needed to know how to speak Latin and Greek. That was it. That was the only real standard they had of getting it. You just needed to know how to speak Latin and Greek, which I mean, we all know. How to, we don't, I don't. So this is the English entrance examination for University of Illinois, 1922. First of all, it's interesting that they had an entrance examination 
to get into college. There's no tests to get into college anymore. Right? If you want to go to a college, you don't take a test to get into that college. You apply and you write all these blowhardy essays about how much volunteering you've done in the last year. But there's no exam. So I think that alone says a lot about college. But anyway, this is the written exam. Uh, five questions. First question, describe the conditions causing Achilles to stop fighting. Describe the conditions to causing Achilles to stop fighting. Number one, uh, number two, what was Franklin's plan for the union of the colonies? Discuss his arguments in favor of it. Number three, what characteristics in a Midsummer's Night dream are more than mere types? Defend your answer. Number four, summarize the chief ideas you gained from reading one of Thackeray's essays in The English Humorist. That's an easy one, right? <laughs> could, all, could all answer that. And number five, uh, point out four distinctly poesque characteristics marking the raven. Poesque meaning Edgar Allan Poe, poesque characteristics in the raven. There's five questions there. Um, so those questions mean that anyone going to college, it is assumed that that person has not only a passing familiarity, but a deep understanding of, well, in these questions, the Iliad, Ben Franklin's writings, Shakespeare, Edgar Allan Poe, and William Thackeray. Right? I, like, you know, even if they have an English exam today, which they barely do anymore, they'll give you a paragraph and you read the paragraph and then you write about the paragraph. Like, pff, whatever. This was, oh, you just have to know about the Iliad. Right. So describe the conditions causing Achilles to stop fighting. Oh, you just know that off the top of your head because of course you've read it. <laughs> of course everyone's read the Iliad. And I, oh yeah, okay, I can tell you all about it. That was in 1922. We're not even close to that. Thackeray, by the way, he wrote, uh, he wrote a book called Vanity Fair. So one of the most read books ever is called The Pilgrim's Progress. It was written in 1670-something. And along the route of the Pilgrim, is he comes across a town called Vanity, which is where everyone is engrossed in worldly things, vain things. So this guy, Thackeray, a couple hundred years later, wrote a book called Vanity Fair, and he wrote it as a critique of British people. I have no idea why the magazine would then call itself Vanity Fair. That's not a good thing. It's about unnecessary and worldly things. But anyway, doesn't matter. So that's how far we've fallen. Meanwhile, we got a new report from USA Today about the average grade of a senior graduating high school. The average grade uh, is an A, which includes an A plus and an A minus. So in 1998... 38% of seniors had an A average. Today, 47%. So half of graduating seniors are A students, even though SAT scores are falling. And even though I don't think there's a single high schooler who could answer one of those five questions of the 1922 University of Illinois entrance exam. <laughs> right? Is there, is there, I, seriously, do you know a high schooler? I bet the high school down the street from you or the one your kid goes to, I bet you can't, if you just pulled one high schooler out, I don't mean insulting, right? I bet if you just pulled one high schooler out, just because that's what this was, this was just yoink, here, here you are. And you gave them these five questions. I bet not one of them could answer that in a way that would 
let them gain admission into the University of Illinois. I bet you could find, I bet you could look at, you could take any English major at the University of Illinois today and ask them those five questions and they couldn't answer one of them properly. That's where we are today. What the heck is wrong with us? We are failing our kids. It's a mixture of a completely failed education system, which we talk about all the time. But also, I think it's intentional from some who want people to be ignorant. I want to quote here Professor Alan Bloom in his great book, The Closing of the American Mind. He wrote this in 1987. He said, lack of education simply results in students seeking for enlightenment wherever it is readily available without being able to distinguish between the sublime and trash insight and propaganda. Lack of education results in students seeking for enlightenment wherever it's readily available without being able to distinguish between the sublime and trash insight and propaganda. Gosh, it reminds me of the Dennis Prager clip we played earlier. He was giving a debate at Oxford and, and the, one of the professors stands up and asks a question, which was supposed to be some sort of zinger and everyone in the audience applauded. And he goes, Oh, I'm not quite sure. I see the profundity of your question. I'm, I'm not quite sure. I see how insightful your question was, but everyone in the audience, they, they, they weren't smart enough to be able to distinguish between insight and propaganda. The question was just propaganda. They thought it was insightful. They couldn't distinguish. They don't know. Dumb people are sheep. Dumb people are sheep. And there are certain people who want power who understand that very well. So I think a lot of it is good intentions. I think a lot of it is selfishness from unions. I think a lot of it is power grab from politicians. Fame grabbing. And I think a lot of it, or some of it, and you can decide what's more influential of all this, but some of this is people who truly want to keep others ignorant because those are easily led. one 888 I want to come back. One more clip from this uh, back and forth. Excuse me, from this testimony with comedian Adam Carolla and uh, conservative Ben Shapiro. I want to come back with the Ben Shapiro part who in his Ben Shapiro way lays out the three-step plan of how this works and how this is all crumbling right before our eyes. And remember all of this stuff starts in the universities and then trickles down everywhere else. My my best example of things trickling down is 10 years ago. I've told the story a million times. 10 years ago, my college roommate said, Oh my gosh, Slater, you're not going to believe in class. They taught about gender fluidness and there's more than two genders and blah, blah, blah. That was 10 years ago. And today this is being taught to kindergartners. 10 years. This stuff that's going on in college campuses right now, this will become norm unless we are aware of it, like you are, and like unless we try to stop it, which we all are. We'll play this Ben Shapiro clip next. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. I'm going to put up uh, the two books that I just mentioned. We'll put that on Twitter right now. And join us on Facebook. Search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook. And uh, we got some Facebook Lives that we do every day. And we'll get to hang out there as well. Search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze. Radio Network, spread the word. This is Mike Slater. 
part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. the next generation of talk radio this is mike slater uh this is ben shapiro testifying in front of congress the other day and uh he outlines it very clearly here's how it works free speech is under assault because of a three-step argument made by the advocates and justifiers of violence the first step is they say that the validity or invalidity of an argument can be judged solely by the ethnic sexual racial or cultural identity of the person making the argument The second step is that they claim those who say otherwise are engaging in what they call verbal violence. And the final step is they conclude that physical violence is sometimes justified in order to stop such verbal violence. So let's examine each of these three steps in turn. First, the philosophy of intersectionality. This philosophy now dominates college campuses as well as a large segment, unfortunately, of today's Democratic Party and suggests that straight white Americans are inherently the beneficiaries of white privilege and therefore cannot speak on certain policies since they have not experienced what it's like to be black or Hispanic or gay or transgender or a woman. This philosophy ranks the value of a view not based on the logic or merit of the view, but on the level of victimization in American society experienced by the person espousing the view. Therefore, if you're an LGBT black woman, your view of American society is automatically more valuable than that of a straight white male. The next step in the logic is obvious. If a straight white male or anybody else who ranks lower on the victimhood scale says something contrary to the viewpoint of the higher ranking intersectionality identity, that person has engaged in a microaggression. As NYU social psychologist Jonathan Haidt writes, microaggressions are small actions or word choices that seem on their face to have no malicious intent, but that are thought of as a kind of violence nonetheless. You don't have to actively say anything insulting to microaggress. Somebody merely needs to take offense. If, for example, you say that society ought to be colorblind, you're microaggressing certain identity groups who have been victimized by a non-colorblind society. Note, microaggressions, as the name suggests, are not merely insults. They are aggressions. They are the equivalent to physical violence. Just two weeks ago, psychologist Lisa Feldman Barrett of Northeastern University published an essay in the New York Times suggesting that words should be seen as physical violence because they can cause stress and stress causes physical harm. Thus, Feldman suggested it is reasonable, scientifically speaking, to ban or restrict speech you do not like at your school. This is both inane and dangerous. That's because it leads to the final logical step. Words you don't like deserve to be fought physically. When I spoke at California State University LA, One professor threatened students who sponsored me by offering to fight them. He then posted a slogan on the door of his office stating, the best response to microaggression is macroaggression. As Haidt writes, this is why the idea that speech is violence is so dangerous. It tells the members of a generation already beset by anxiety and depression that the world is a far more violent and threatening place than it really is. It tells them that words, ideas, speakers can literally kill them. Even worse, at a time of rapidly rising political polarization in the United States, uh, so okay, see how that works? Do you see how that works? You can't say something because you're, let's go with white. And if you do say it, that's step one. You can't say it because you're white. If you do say it, you're committing verbal violence. That's step two. Step three is I can combat your verbal violence with real actual violence. That professor that he was talking about in the New York Times, uh, I found that article that he was referencing and she says that verbal violence can make you sick 
It can alter your brain, kill neurons, and shorten your life. Let me quote. She says, your body's immune system includes little proteins called pro-inflammatory cytokines that cause inflammation when you're physically injured. Under certain conditions, however, these cytokines themselves can cause physical illness. What are those conditions? One of them is chronic stress. All right, so she goes on and she talks more about the, uh, the science behind that. She goes, student advocates have vigorously protested, even violently, against invited speakers whose views they consider not just offensive but harmful. This idea that there's often no difference between speech and violence has struck many as coddling or infantizing of students, which is what I believe, as does Ben Shapiro. But she says, no, that's not true. She says a, a culture of constant casual brutality is toxic to the body, and we suffer for it. That's why it's reasonable, scientifically speaking, not to allow a provocateur and hate monger like Milo Yiannopoulos to speak at your school. He is part of something noxious, a campaign of abuse. There's nothing to be gained from debating him, for debate is not what he is offering. Gosh, that is so twisted. That is the height of arrogance because, of course, she feels that it's her job to decide who is worthy of being debated and who is not worthy of being debated. She decides what is healthy debate and what is unhealthy, who to listen to and who not to listen to. She decides who is stressful to listen to, too stressful, too stressful to the point where it causes you physical harm to listen to and who it's okay to listen to. And gosh, I hope you don't fall on the unhealthy side of her determination. She says, by all means, we should have open conversations and vigorous debate about controversial or offensive topics but we must also halt speech that bullies and torments from the perspective of our brain cells. That is literally a form of violence. Okay. Here's the, uh, here's my response to this professor. Two points. First personal responsibility. Second perspective. We'll go with perspective first. Um, chronic stressful situations. That's what she's talking about, right? She says, if you're a student on a college campus and you have Milo Yiannopoulos come, uh, or Ben Shapiro, come to campus then, uh, or Adam Carolla. He tells a story of how he got shut down from campus one time. So you have, you have Adam Carolla come to campus and, and that's a chronic stressful situation. You need a little perspective. If you think that's the case, chronic, a chronic stressful situation would be a child who lives in an abusive home. That's a chronically stressful situation. That's dangerous. That can lead to major emotional problems for a child that can last forever. A student at Harvard is in no such situation. If there's a spectrum of stressful situations and you are a student at a major university in 2017 America, you're fine. On that spectrum, so let's go zero to a hundred. Let's say a hundred is very stressful. We'll go with child in an abusive home. That's a hundred. Very, very stressful. Constant stress, constant awareness, continence, constant alertness, neglect, all the rest. Right? That's a hundred. If you're a, a student at a major university in 20, 2017 America, if the kid's a hundred, you are a six. Because you got a big test coming up and I understand you got to study for it and that can be kind of stressful. But in the grand scheme of things, you're hovering around a six on a scale of one to a hundred. 
you are at that moment, the most stressful moment of your college career, the very most stressful, you are still in the top 1% of most pleasant experiences ever had by a human being. You are as comfortable and safe and and should be stress-free with proper perspective as really anyone ever. And it's up to society and professors and adults to help kids have that proper perspective. And goodness, that I'm talking if you're in the height of exam time, you're like a six on the grand scale of human existence from zero to 100. If you are on a Friday night going to one of the speaking venues and listening to Adam Carolla, your, your stress level is a zero, okay? You're fine. That's the perspective. Personal responsibility. If you can't handle a speaker on campus, that's not the fault of the speaker. It's your fault. Take some responsibility over how you receive things. Take some responsibility for how you interpret things. I think we played a video a couple weeks ago of John Cleese from Monty Python. And he said that people who can't control how they feel try to control how other people behave. And this is true for everyone, not talking about just college kids. People who can't control how they feel try to control how other people behave. And that's what all this is. These are a bunch of adults and students who can't control how they feel. They have no personal responsibility for how they receive information and interpret things. So instead, they seek to control other people's behavior. That's what this is all about. Don't let them do it. Because they're never going to be satisfied. They're always going to be hysterical. one 900 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, thanks for being here. Uh, I just put a bunch of books on our Twitter page. Uh, so you can check all those out, Slater Radio. And uh, buy those, they're excellent. And remember, every time you feel the urge to watch cable news, read a book, I promise you, you will be so much happier. You're just, you'll feel better. It's, it's like getting off a drug. You, you gotta stop with the cable news. <laughs> I'm telling you. Just stop. It's so bad. It's just a soap opera. It's a foolish soap opera. So here's how I visualize it. I I think cable news is this giant multi-billion dollar infrastructure that has been set up to fill a box of outrage. So there's this box of outrage that has to be full at all times. And they've determined that there's a certain number, a certain amount of outrage, right? That, that they need at all times in order to keep people watching. And that's the size of the box. If it's too much, then people maybe won't watch because it's too much outrage. And if it's not enough, then it's boring, right? So it's got to be just the right amount of outrage. They have this box and it's yay big and it's always full, no matter what. There could be nothing going on. There could be literally nothing happening, but it's got to fill the box, or there could be some things happening 
that, that do fill it, right? But, but the point is at all times, it's got to fill the box. Even if they have to make stuff up, even if there's nothing really there, it just has to be constant outrage and it's exhausting. It's just not real. Read. You'll be so much happier. Uh, I want to end here. The Yale professor. The article is, don't send your kids to the Ivy League. The nation's top colleges are turning our kids into zombies. <laughs> uh, our system of elite... Uh, there's a quote here that I'm building to that's unbelievable. Our system of elite education manufactures young people who are smart and talented and driven, yes, but also anxious, timid, and lost with little intellectual curiosity and a stunted sense of purpose. Trapped in a bubble of privilege, heading meekly in the same direction, great at what they're doing, but with no idea why they're doing it. Gosh, it's so good. Great at what they're doing, no idea why they're doing it. So we have two main forces happening here. We have the culture that we shared the last few weeks. Uh, you have the underclass. Theodore Dalrymple, this book, Life at the Bottom, it's fantastic. Talks about people living in ghettos, kids with no drive, no determination, no future, no understanding of a future, no concept of a future. Kids who you say, you know, you got to get an education so you can get a good job, go to work. And they say, work, I've... They literally don't know anyone in their life who has ever gone to a job, ever. They've never seen anyone get dressed and go to work. They've never seen anyone say, oh, I got to go, I got to get to work. That's never, ever passed their experience, not one time. And they grew up in a culture, an environment where it's all about the whims of the moment. Zero concept of future, planning, prudence. That's one massive culture that exists in America. Then you have this other major culture in America, which is work, 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 and be miserable. Check out this line. It was only after 24 years in the Ivy League that I started to think about, this is amazing, this is the sentence here. 24 years that I started to think about what this system does to kids and how they can escape from it what it does to our society and how we can dismantle it. Wow. <laughs> so it's so funny because you kids who, I mean, there's another whole infrastructure set up to try to get kids into the most elite schools, right? And here's this professor saying, oh my gosh, I like, I know what it does to kids and the kids have to escape. And I know what it does to our society and we have to dismantle it. <laughs> we fight so much for this thing that we think is good and it's actually horrible Look behind the facade of seamless well-adjustment and what you often find are toxic levels of fear, anxiety, and depression, of emptiness and aimlessness and isolation. This is Ezra Klein. He said, uh, Wall Street figured out that what colleges are producing, excuse me, is that colleges are producing a large number of very smart, completely confused graduates. Kids who have ample mental horsepower and incredible work ethic and no idea what to do next. So we just get these high achieving drones. So we have these two extremes in our culture. We have work. I've never, never seen anyone work. I don't even, a job, I don't. And then you have people who just work, 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 nonstop, but no idea why and no idea what's next. 
Wow, what a funny, funny split. Right, we'll talk much more about this as we uh, as we go on. Uh, Slater Radio on Twitter, Mike Slater Show on Facebook. We just started doing some Facebook Lives. We do one every day. I might miss one here or there. I missed one the other day because my son went to the emergency room. So they got, can I get a little grace? On that? He's totally fine. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be dramatic when I said that. Um, he got two little stitches on his finger. He fell. So we were standing right next to him. And he fell. I think we got it like he sliced it on like the side of the oven or something. There was like must have been like a, something sharp there when he fell back on his butt. And he sliced it right open. Went to the emergency. Anyway, so we didn't do a Facebook Live at that the next morning. We're kind of tired, but we will almost every day. So join us on Facebook. Actually, I did a Facebook Live two days after that and explain the rest of that story. But anyway, Facebook Live, search for the Mike Slater Show, and we hang out every day there. Until then, we'll see you next Saturday. Mike Slater Show, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.